welcome to Bloody Mary, a podcast about horror movies, feminism, and sexuality. I'm your host, comedian Kristen Lighty, and I'm so excited with us today. We have Associate Professor Allison Stottinger. Hey. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. Yeah, and uh, I kudos for making it out today. It is blustery and cold and terrible outside. Uh, Allison is an associate professor at UWGB, that is my alma mater, and uh, there she teaches democracy and justice studies and women and gender studies. So, uh, hey, Allison, why don't you tell the people a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, So, like you said, I teach for democracy and justice studies, which is the version 2.0 of of the program you graduated from. I did. Uh, And we have a bunch of interdisciplinary uh, social scientists and humanist faculty and students who are interested in questions about how does the world change and get better and what kind of resources or strategies or politics or history would you need to think about those questions and to act on them. Um, And then I teach for women and gender studies, which is sort of the same questions about making politics better, but with you know, particular focused on gender and sexuality. Um, I don't teach film, though, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was recently on a panel that Allison invited me on at UWGB with Democracy and Justice Studies graduates talking about, you know, how we had made careers uh, from this degree, and I just felt like a grizzled old sea captain. <laughs> it was really fun. It was so fun to connect with people uh, in the program, you know. So what have been some kind of your highlights for this year? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, a colleague and I did have a book come out, which is exciting. I guess technically last year, but it's uh, the same school year, so it feels Mm -hmm. like it. Um, So we um, wrote and co-edited a volume of essays um, for a book called Gender in the Political Science Classroom. And so uh, the book is kind of an argument that instead of Oh, kind of adding women or questions about gender and sexuality on from time to time into the political science curriculum that a more gender-focused curriculum would be really important for political science, uh, for thinking about questions that matter to our students, but also for thinking about how the classroom can be a more welcoming place for all sorts of students. So there's questions of race and and other things in the book, too. So that's super exciting. Yeah. Um, What else? I got to go to Norway. Oh, cool. Did you see a bunch of black metal bands? I did not. I saw, (laughs) like, I mean, I saw a landscape that definitely reinforced why there are a lot of black metal bands in Norway. Um, But yeah, no, I mainly saw a lot of trees. Oh, it was still exciting. I'm really excited about your book about expanding curriculum because I like as a high school student I was I was well one I was not really there a lot but also like I didn't know I liked history until I had almost like failed out of like high school completely because there weren't any women or interesting things happening and then I graduated and started reading about Emma Goldman and like all these awesome women I was like where where were they you know yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think, too, a lot of students feel like that about um, social science, where they never know they know like sociology or political science because uh, they've got this, well, either they don't know what it is or they think that it's going to be kind of all statistics or all kind of really distant from human life or mm-hmm. um, any questions that they care about. So Yeah, yeah. it definitely, it, it, sometimes like as an outsider, it felt like, 
you know, you'll take human emotion and turn it into like raw data and like robots or something. And then you, you know, once you get in it, you realize that's not what it's about at all. Uh, but I could definitely see that. Um, so uh, it's been a couple months since I last recorded, and I just want to say I'm sorry. Seasonal depression is real, <laughs> so we're back now, and I'm very excited uh, uh, to talk about the film that Allison chose today. But first, I want to ask, uh, you know, what is the first horror movie you remember seeing? Well, I was thinking about this, and I think the first one I remember seeing was Arachnophobia, which I saw at a slumber party, Um, so I was probably eight or nine, somewhere around there, and Mm -hmm. I remember I had the experience of enjoying it, but having such a different experience from the people around me that it was also kind of alienating, so (laughs) I, I, maybe it's because I don't have a fear of spiders, it was not a super frightening like I thought it was really funny mm-hmm. more than anything um like I just remember you know he's, especially when he's chasing them around with a nail gun I just feel like there's something so like comedic I don't think I could have named it as like this is a s- suburban dad joke but it mm-hmm. it's like funny right that the nail gun this like tool of I don't know um your basement or your garage is being used to kill these spiders and <laughs> but the other girls at the sleepover did not think it was funny and there were a few that really freaked out and like couldn't go to sleep and you know which oh. if you're afraid of spiders I yeah. totally get mm-hmm. um but I do think it was kind of it was a I was like oh I think I'm missing something I feel like I should be more upset kind of so it was mm-hmm. an odd um an odd early experience that didn't necessarily make me think that I would like more horror yeah, I actually I have that. Uh, I've learned to not watch horror movies on dates anymore because I have that same exact reaction, and it makes people kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> but sometimes horror movies are funny. I don't know. You just go with it. So, um, you know, given that experience, how do you feel about horror as a genre overall now? So I knew you were going to ask me this, and I <laughs> my first thought was like, oh, I don't really like horror, but I don't think that's true. I mean, I was dipping a little bit into your back catalog, and I was like. Oh, I like this. I like this, and I like mm-hmm. that. Or even movies that I don't like in a certain way, I like to talk about or think about or in, you engage with. But I do think after sometime after Arachnophobia, I think I saw a bunch of movies. I can't even. I don't even know exactly which ones they would be. That kind of fall into a lot of the tropes about you know punishing young women for their sexuality. Oh and yeah. Yes. Ever um, popular. <laughs> right. Or or movies that, you know, the gore is kind of the point in a way that just mm-hmm. really didn't work for me or movies where, you know, the monster is a human monster, but not in a way that's very interesting to me. They just kind of seem like a really bad person that wants to kill people. Um, and so I think for a while I really felt um, like there wasn't a lot of place for me in, in horror movies. Mm-hmm. I feel like people always say, and I've heard this on your podcast, like, oh, you try to figure out which one you would be, mm-hmm. who you would be, you know, would you make it to the end? And I think especially when I was young, I felt like I was no one or that I was the one who got eaten at the beginning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about how folks really responded to, um, what's her name, Barb and Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I was thinking about like, okay, why are people doing this? Well, part of it's got to be, I'm sure someone's written stuff on this, but part of it's got to be being like, oh, that's me. I'm the one sitting in the <laughs> pool, right, with my feet yeah. um, dangling. Um, so I think it took me a while to realize that I really did enjoy horror. And I think I came back around in part through... Um, having friends who knew how to direct me to more interesting horror movies. So I like like mm-hmm. funny, campy stuff. Like that's fun for me. Um, I like 
more um you know, I loved um, Sorry to Bother You and Get Out, I think. Oh, I yeah. Know, Sorry to Bother You counts as horror, but certainly right on the edge. I mean, I'd say body horror. Yeah. 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 And I, so I love, like, play, things that are playing with that. Or I think you had someone talk about teeth. I love oh, that yeah. That's a good things one. Things like that I really like. Um, so I do think I like horror more than I thought. I think I just am hesitant to say it because I can imagine saying, oh, yes, and then sitting down to a movie and being like, oh, no. <laughs> That's interesting so much to me because what I'm hearing from you and your synopsis of like how you feel about horror is exactly how I felt about history. Like, <laughs> weird. So, okay, so I feel like we're kind of in a, um, you know, a renaissance of horror right now and like specifically serial killers. Have you watched the Ted, uh, the Bundy tapes? Oh, I haven't. No. Oh, okay. See, that's, I, I know I should watch it, but it's, I'm also, I have a lot of like uh, squidginess about watching it mm-hmm. just because of the totally refracted through the internet and maybe not even accurate discourse around his attractiveness or you know what is so interesting about that to me is because I've always like heard and soaked up the oh he was just so handsome you know uh but like in watching the Bundy tapes it, it made me realize like he wasn't like specifically luring women in or using his charm in any way in the actual murdering his like charm or whatever came into play when he was already in custody and it was like other white men in power that couldn't believe a man like this was doing those things a man that looked like him you know like them uh so they didn't properly shackle him or really take him seriously as a suspect which allowed him to escape twice and go out and kill more women so like when they say handsome what they're really talking about is his white privilege and his class privilege because he like positioned himself as like a law student so that really kind of blew my mind and um you know I mean he wasn't bad looking or anything but <laughs> it was really more about like his privilege and positioning that to escape and murder murder more women um but yeah with the Zac Efron movie coming out um a lot of people have criticized that yeah, so it's kind of the it's the uh, John Hamm joke from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Like, no yes. one, no one could put someone in a bunker who looks like John Hamm. Um, yeah, I think too for me with serial killers, I have a lot of students who are really interested in serial killers, and it's frustrating to me because while of course they exist, for me like the crime, we have a lot of students in our major who are interested in criminology, who are interested in the criminal justice system, including improving it, or you know abolishing it. Um, but then a subset of them want to learn about serial killers, and it's frustrating for me because I want to be like, okay, the the likely bad things that are going to happen to you or someone like you are things like intimate partner violence in your home, right? Mm-hmm. Or the type of crime that you should be worrying about. You should be worrying about, you know, the way that um, white collar crime is screwing you over, like monumentally. Yeah. Not that some serial killer is going to come find you. Or when they think about uh, rape or sexual violence, I think on college campuses, despite so much discussion about how sexual assault actually happens there's still this notion of you know strange people hiding in the bushes um, oh definitely and so for mm-hmm. me I get really um, frustrated around the serial killer discourse even though I understand part of it is a way to explore questions of evil and and kind of what does it mean to be a human when they're capable of, of things like that but so I think I have some Maybe unfair barriers against. No, I think you have a really valid point because it kind of like sensationalizes the crime and takes um, focus off, you know, the everyday crime that we begin to internalize as like, quote unquote, normal. You know, I think that's a very valid point. 
All right, so for us to talk about, Allison chose A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and it is the 2014 uh, vampire tale. It's filmed in California. They speak Persian in the film, so it is subtitled, and black and white really felt like a throwback to like silent films, actually, with the, the dark and shadow of it. And I actually, I had been meaning to see this, and it was on my list, so I'm so glad you picked it. Uh, but what made you pick this movie? You know, I I think I picked it uh, partially just because I remembered the atmosphere of it. I hadn't seen it for I saw it when it first came out, and uh, I just had this really strong memory of some of the visuals. So of the girl um, riding a skateboard, you know, down mm-hmm. the street mm-hmm. uh, in the dark with her billowing chador, kind of like a cape behind her, uh, and the retro vintage feel. I mean, there's some actual um, the main male character drives like a I don't know I don't know cars like a Thunderbird or something I don't know yeah. one of those cars a right cool car. a cool car right <laughs> and and his he looks like James Dean and just the style of it and the atmosphere I was interested in uh, and then in general I love like I was saying I like movies that play with genre a little bit uh, and so you know women vampire movies I'm pretty much always down for I think I wanted mm-hmm. to do The Hunger and then luckily you already had someone talk about it quite oh, wonderfully yeah. Professor Carrie Callis yes, yes. Cool. Yeah, it was really fun to watch. And I have to say, overall, it didn't feel like a horror movie to me. Like, it felt honestly like a really good love story. <laughs> and maybe that's just like showing my bad history of relationships. <laughs> that's interesting you say that, though, because I was trying to decide, like, is it a love story? Because in some ways, it very much seems to be a story about how, you know, two crazy kooky kids find mm-hmm. each other in the midst of uh, a horrible hopeless landscape and then flee together yeah um, bad city bad city yes mm-hmm. uh, but it's also kind of really unclear what their relationship is I mean mm-hmm. they've definitely connected um, they've definitely I think in some way committed to some kind of community building together but like yeah I don't know I'm torn about is it a love story or not because there's some markers that are kind of romantic um, but there's not a clear uh, and he gives her a present. He gives her earrings. Um, mm-hmm. But there's not kind of a traditional, like, I don't know, consummation of, of it. Yeah. I felt like music was monumental in their relationship. And there was scenes where, like, there was not a lot of dialogue, but they would play music for each other. Like, she played him music in her room, and he played her music in his car. And it was like, oh, I remember being a teenager and doing that. And, like, this Sonic Youth album means everything to me. <laughs> And uh, so it's kind of like a throwback to that feeling. And there were, I mean, this will age me, but there were a lot of moments in the film where I just felt like, oh, that's so 90s. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. The music, uh, I mean, the the music really sticks with you, I think, uh, throughout the whole film. But the way that they play it for each other, the tape at the end, I love that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. I also felt like at the end, uh, Tracy Chapman's fast car should have been playing. Like, yeah, get out of bed, city. Go make a new life together. Uh, but, you know, in the lead up to that love story, there's a lot of other things happening. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing now that you're saying that, that they have such a kind of pure, if that's the right word, or teenage mm-hmm. yeah. romance, despite that everything that's happening in the film, I mean, one of the opening scenes uh, after we see um, Arash, I think is his name, driving is... Uh, the background music slows down and we see, you know, a gully full of bodies. Yeah. Right? It's just kind of the normal background. He doesn't even turn his head. And mm-hmm. later we'll see bodies tossed into there. 
so everything else is really quite violent and scary and, mm-hmm. and as I'm sure we'll talk about you know it's a, it's a landscape of drug addiction and oil and um, sex work that seems to be pretty uh, hierarchical and violent mm-hmm. and then they, ha- they you're right they do have this kind of teenaged sweet um, whatever it is romance of some sort yeah yeah um, so speaking of which okay so the sex workers the drug dealer and the vampire they kind of like all sort of um, I feel like see each other and identify with each other and it's almost like this um, friendship that forms through this sense of alienation and I thought that was so interesting because it, as we get older it's kind of like the drug dealers and sex workers they do kind of become like the boogeyman in um, you know like mainstream media and things like that yeah I, I think the one of the even though the romance kind of drives the film in some ways, or the, or the the main relationship between the girl and Arash, the relationship that develops between the sex worker and the vampire, mm-hmm. um, they have the most actual dialogue where they're talking about about real things. They have this long conversation about change and like what are the possibilities for change. Um, the girl ends up giving her. Um, jewelry and money I think Mm -hmm. I mean you can imagine her leaving too right I Mm -hmm. I almost kind of wish that they were like picking her up at the end right yeah but there's a a way in which they they seem to build a um uh, to have more of a of a connection than than any of the other characters even though that doesn't get kind of played out at the end so no I agree and I think they have a shared spirit in the sense of like they're both um you know free women living um you know, the way that they want to. One thing I really um, thought about a lot in their conversation was the vampire, the girl. And, and you know, it's kind of weird that she's just called the girl. You I know. know. Yeah, I'm torn about that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. But um, the girl tells uh, Ati, I think that's... Yes. Yes. Um, you don't look happy, you know? And, and it's this, like, um, you know, we're both these outsiders, but, like, I'm happy. You know, you're not happy. Maybe you should think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. That's so interesting because I, I see what you're saying. I think I also, it seemed like she recognized that Ati wasn't happy because of her own loneliness. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if she's unhappy, um, the girl, I mean, but it, it seemed like she definitely knew what it was like to be someone who was doing work that she didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the kind of subterranean issues in this movie is that even though you at the end see the girl going off somewhere else you kind of wonder like how is she gonna live there mm-hmm. is she you know she's still gonna have to in some way feed off humanity right that's kind of the situation she's stuck in mm-hmm. and uh she's been it seems like turning that towards a kind of vigilante justice in a way that maybe is really empowering for her yes um, but is there another is that is that the only future or is there some other future she can imagine and so i think when she's talking to Ati about change and like why what are you saving up money for she's also asking herself like what possible futures could you could you live Mm -hmm. and I do really see the girl as a vigilante you know like particularly in in the first scene where we really get to meet her she is well we see her go home with the drug dealer than the pimp guy um, Saeed, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she's just kind of like watching him and he's like, 
come to my house and watch me do drugs, which was I'm going to dance for you. He really, I love how confident he is in that his dance is going to seduce her. Yeah. It's like, look at my abs. I am so sexy. Oh, and then he was also lifting weights. Yes. Like, oh my God, I think I've met this man before. Um, and she's just like eyeing things up and then he starts doing that uh, finger thing oh, yeah. in her mouth which listeners don't do that it's you're gonna get me sick give me a cold <laughs> with some germ on your hand but he's like rubbing his finger around her lips and then she's just like shows the teeth and he keeps going for it and oh then, he doesn't yeah. just keep going for it yeah he has this moment where he thinks it's going, it's somehow, the teeth coming out, are, it's going to somehow contribute to his pleasure. Yes. I love that minute because he's like, kind of like, mm, and then he's like, oh yeah, like this is going to be some, <laughs> you know, sex play he's never thought of. I, I laugh aloud at that moment. Yes. I think it's, even though it's, you know, a, 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 the forerunner of, of blood, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really funny. Me too. Uh, then obviously, you know, she bites off his finger, murders him. And I really enjoyed how she just kind of took stock of his home and like took whatever she wanted. It did feel vigilante to me in that moment. And then the next moment where it really struck me is when she kind of interrogates the little kid. Oh, yeah, the boy. Yeah. And she's like, are you a good boy? And, uh, you know, kind of like forces him into like, you know, you know um, saying that I am a good boy. And part of me wonders is like, if, if this is like her agenda to like scare men. <laughs> yeah. I, love it. <laughs> I mean, it seems to be like an, kind of an intervention, like to try to, I don't know, like, like cut off toxic masculinity yes. and children, right? Before, yes. I mean, I don't know how effective of an intervention it would be. He's mm-hmm. certainly afraid. Yes. Um, but it does seem to be an anti-patriarchal gesture that, you know, that the child is not yet, uh, so much of a man that he deserves punishment, but maybe can be educated in some way. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. So that I was thinking those things about her character, and then she killed a homeless man. Yeah. And part of me is like, what is going on? What does that say? What did that mean to you? Well, so the that scene happens right after when she's had the long scene with Ati, the sex worker, where they're having that long conversation. Mm-hmm. And I guess. Well, at first, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, is it just because he's a man and she hates all men? But I don't think that really makes sense. Um, So my secondary thought was that it was supposed to bother us and remind us that even though she seems to mainly be in control of her need to drink blood, right? You know, Mm -hmm. she's not a normal vampire if such exists. You know, she, she seems to be able to keep herself from biting people that she cares about in a pretty striking way and direct her violence at evil. I mean, there's even that moment later on where she seems to be somewhere else in the city and kind of perk up like she senses something horrible is happening and and flies in. So I guess I was thinking, well, maybe this is supposed to remind us that even though she is this emancipatory, exciting figure that you can definitely read as a a feminist hero or anti-hero that she's still kind of trapped in some ways, right? She still has, has to eat. Yeah. And and you can imagine, I mean, she's always going to have to eat. So what is she going to do? How is she going to solve that problem? Which is like a classic vampire problem. And if you have any Mm -hmm. vampire series trying to have nice vampires, they have to solve it by you know, what do they do like go to blood banks or all these yeah. ways that they are like yes. take you know I think blade takes drugs to try to not um mm-hmm. 
So I think I was trying, like, well, this is reminding us that she is monstrous, even though she is a hero. Um, and I think, I think, even though I felt it was a little weird way to do that, I, I think it's important because, um, you know, being a feminist anti-hero who, you know, takes on all these patriarchal structures around you, it would not be without cost, right? You mm-hmm. would be alienated and you would be alone. And so I guess that's how I was trying to read it. But I don't know. It's it's It came off a little odd to me. I don't know if it quite worked the way that it was supposed to. No, I think what you bring up is really smart. And I think the metaphor that jumps to my mind also is the idea that, like, you can be, like, as good as your morals will hold you up, you know, but, like, living in our structure, in our system, you still are benefiting off of the exploitation and people living in another country that you never, ever see because of capitalism. So I wonder if it's, like, kind of that little um, nod of, like, yeah, you're a good person, you think you're doing all the right things, but, yeah, you're still part of this system and you got to feed, you know? I don't want to think of myself in that way. Yeah, but there are clearly lots of metaphors in this film about mm-hmm. like feeding on people or about dependency or about um, the ways in which people are, are interconnected through, you know, flows of drugs, flows of oil. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, too, the and I'm sure that someone else could understand this better than I could, but the context of thinking about this setting as while certainly Iranian in some ways is also American in so many ways mm-hmm. and the filmmaker being an um, Iranian-American, uh, that part of, what's, part of what they're thinking about is the relationship between the United States and, and other countries, particularly when linked by oil, and I think you're right, linked by capitalism mm. has got to be part of, part of what's going on here. Even all the people we meet are kind of in a shadow economy, uh, we don't have any idea about what's happening in Bad City during the day. Mm-hmm. It still seems to be in part about how like living and making money and surviving involves feeding off others in some ways. Yeah. In, no matter different what roles you're in. Definitely. And I have to say, too, I was a little nervous to talk about this one as a white woman because I was like, oh, is there so much going over my head that maybe I don't quite get, you know? Uh, but I feel like it's so rich with metaphor. It, it, there's really a lot going on here within this story. I did read that the uh, tattoo on the guy's head <laughs> means pimp in F- oh, Farsi. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, that's convenient. Then yeah. you don't even have to know what he is. It just tells you right yeah, away. Yeah, right there. You read it. I also love that he had sex on his neck. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah, sexy dude. <laughs> He's also so 90s. I mean, that's, I don't know, if you yes. haven't seen this film and you're, you're trying to picture this person, he kind of had like a, like the grittier side of a sort of Backstreet Boys style almost. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. a little rougher than that, but it was real, like, lovely 90s vibe. Yeah, he will definitely try to sell you ecstasy at a rave. <laughs> oh, also, I realized I hated him because he, like, walked into his house and banged on the fish tank. Oh, yeah. Like, what a dick. <laughs> so in terms of, like, addiction, I think you see, like, you really begin to sympathize with Arash because he's the one that is like trying to take care of his father who is like full on addicted to heroin. I'm assuming it's heroin. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that was an interesting story as well, because you started to think about like the role reversal in taking care of a parent and having to be the one to say, no, this is bad for you. And like the way they kept trying to frame it though, was like um, the dad kept saying, I'm sick and I need my medicine. You're like, oh no, uh, it's heroin. And I think, I feel like 
The girl and Arash's relationship was solidified in the very beginning when she killed Saeed. Why do you see that as the moment? Because I don't know. I don't know if it was just because, like, the girl did not like this man's interaction with the sex worker, Ati, so she killed him. But I, I like to think she had a larger scope of, like, what was going on in the community. And I think... I also like the idea that they're drawn together because of the scene where he is like out of his mind on drugs and dressed as a vampire. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm not going to hurt you. Um, and she's like, no, that's cute. I could murder you in a heartbeat. But <laughs> I think in that scene, like there was some sort of um, like him showing her his vulnerability and like that he was someone who was trying to take care of people. Even, like, the kid on the street, he was nice, too. I don't know. He was just kind of like this person in the community that was trying to do good things, I think. Yeah. I mean, I do think, too, the, um, yeah, those ironies where he keeps reassuring her he's not going to harm her are great. It's mm-hmm. another place where I totally <laughs> chuckle. Um, but I also wonder, I mean, I was thinking about this. So it seems like the girl does a lot of things that end up helping Arash. So, you know, Saeed... One of the first scenes we see with him is him taking this beautiful car away yeah. um, from Arash and, and um, because uh, uh, Arash's dad owes him money. And then that gets solved, essentially. He gets the car back because of the girl's intervention, deadly intervention. And then, you know, later, not that his dad should be maybe only seen as a problem, but because uh, his dad is... Um, they're at least in a codependent relationship that's, I think, very draining on Arash, and in a way, she solved that problem too. So, I was trying to decide: like, does it, is she now becoming um, kind of codependent with him, or is the fact that there's a real gender reversal here, and she's doing the kind of heroic acts mm-hmm. that make it possible for them to flee, um, you know, enough of a of a sh- of a shift that we should we should think about that differently and not worry about. Um, her, you know, you don't want to imagine them moving to a new place and then she just has to solve all the problems for him <laughs> all the time by killing people, right? Like, they need another mode of... And that's not how they interact. He never asks her to do that. Yeah, that's um, true. But I just I hope she has hope she has other projects going on yeah, going yeah. forward. Worry about you. You know, maybe get a name for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so after that scene where she brings him to her house and they play music and, like... He, she could have bitten him. You know, mm-hmm. she was even looking at the neck. Yeah, like, I think his neck gets tipped back and yum. it's very yeah. enticing. Yeah. <laughs> um, they hug instead. And then the very next scene is the woman dancing with the balloon, which I was, I think I was like either messaging or Facebooking <laughs> you. I was like, what the fuck does the balloon dance mean? <laughs> um, and I thought about it more. And the person dancing with the balloon, uh, like the face is full makeup. The hair is in a scarf, very feminine. And then the clothing is very masculine, like a kind of like almost like a rodeo cowboy Mm kind of top and like, you know, masculine pants. And I kind of feel like dancing with the balloon maybe signifies this um, like balanced energies in a relationship. Mm. It'd be very artsy, but. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, you're doing good. This is a hard. Hard scene. I mean, as you're saying, you know, I think there's definitely. I don't. I don't want to, you know, categorize folks who aren't here to categorize themselves. But this yeah. person appears as gender queer or mm-hmm. somewhere under the trans umbrella, somewhere there. 
but also is doing this really beautiful dance is not you know doesn't seem to be in pain or suffering or mm-hmm. any of those kind of markers that sometimes get sent sent along with genderqueer people with a balloon like yeah you, seriously um so I don't know that I have a, a read on it beyond what you just said except that it seems to be a someone who could be perceived as a potential outsider who is instead seems to be joyous and happy and and mm-hmm. balloons I don't know I mean they show some balloons earlier in the club that are kind of like glimmering up I don't know I don't know what the balloons are supposed to do I didn't I should have looked at like Freud's dream diary or something <laughs> to be like what do balloons <laughs> signify but I guess yes yeah, since, since there's so many images of outsiders kind of finding connection mm-hmm. I guess I was reading that person in some way like you're saying like being in a I love the idea of it being a balanced relationship that part of the problem in a lot of these relationships is um, th- that they're built on like power and violence or mm-hmm. other things beyond like balance yeah Um, so I like that that's a better I think also though this is one of those moments where you're kind of like okay this is a director this is I think our first full-length film Mm -hmm. that's maybe being a little more art housey than she needs to (laughs) I mean if I were gonna say my overall like like the places that I'm a little uh, about this film have to do with with things like that where I think sometimes the style might be outstrips some of the other things Mm -hmm. but definitely uh so in terms of like asking, you know, what things mean, the other thing that really jumped out at me, as it did in Alien, was uh, the cat. What oh, does yeah, the, cat the cat mean to you? So this is, I, this is just because I just both watched them, but I just watched the Russian doll set on Netflix. <gasps> I love that show. Yes, me too. But there's a cat also who is kind of a oatmeal in there who gets oh, carried yeah. through in yeah, some yeah. ways. Um, so I'm sure that was. Um, and also, Russian Doll, in a lot of ways, is about people in a situation where they're repeating, they're repeating their habitual behaviors in mm-hmm. a bad situation, and need to connect with each other to kind of get out of it. So I think yeah. there's probably lots of interesting parallels there, um, or just my brain is putting them together. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the cat definitely serves the plot function of letting. Um, Arash know that the girl has something to do with her dad's death because mm-hmm. otherwise she wouldn't have gotten the cat. Um, but it seems to me just in some ways to just be the cat is is serving as a, a connector. The parts that I don't understand about the cat is there's a line about um, when his dad, who I think his name is Hussein, but I'm not sure. Yes. Um, is really whacked out on his heroin and he thinks the cat has his wife dead wife's eyes yeah that and then, is weird yeah and then there's a bunch of scenes of the eyes really close mm-hmm. so yeah. i don't know if i don't know what to do with that part i know i i want to i in my heart want to think that the cat is like somewhat mystical or like overseeing in some way because when they leave the cat is like in the middle oh, yeah. on top of the seat like yeah let's do this that cat is an amazing <laughs> actor too I, I read like a quick interview with the um, director and she's like yeah I didn't want to use this cat this was just some guy's cat who worked on the crew but all of the like Hollywood cats were too like finicky or expensive <laughs> all those so Hollywood she's like, cats she's like yeah I thought this cat was too fat so I didn't want to hire him oh. which is so terrible I was like oh even cats get yeah. body shamed <laughs> Um, but then she was like, he was just the best actor. And that scene at the end, I mean, there's a while where they're sitting in the car and there seems to be, well, I don't know. You can tell me what you think about what's going on. 
they seem to be either hesitating or not sure mm-hmm. or in some way thinking about what they're going to do next. And the cat just like sits down in, in between them and like snuggles in and looks at the camera. So yeah. Great actor, that cat. I love that cat. I part of me wonders like maybe the maybe the cat was supposed to be like the spirit of his mother a little bit. And maybe. Like, saying like, yes, go with this vampire. <laughs> he certainly seems to, the cat seems to connect everybody in the film in a really. Yeah. Um, and, and the um, cat does not really like. Um, Saeed, the pimp guy at the beginning when he tries to hold him. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. I I have in my notes, I just noticed, what does the balloon dance mean? This made me feel dumb. (laughs) (laughs) So I also think like what you were talking about earlier in like bad relationship models is really highlighted between um, Hussein, the father, and Atti, the sex worker. Oh yeah, their scene Uh, is really hard to watch. Yeah, it is. Uh, most of their interactions are really hard to watch and it made me wonder like why do you think Addie is um, you know because she is she's essentially providing a service that she could go and provide to other people and it seems like Hussein doesn't even have money because he can't pay Saeed so like why isn't she going to someone else and doing her work yeah, I don't know, because um, you only have like five or six characters. The world, mm-hmm. even though it's at night, can feel kind of claustrophobic, so it almost feels inevitable. Like, of course, these characters are going to interact because they're all that we have. But in a broader sense, I really, yeah, really didn't want her to, to go in his room with him and then really wanted at the end to know that she was going somewhere else. Not because sex work is inherently bad or any of that, but because this particular situation that she's in seems to, she doesn't seem to have any, you know, clients that, that at least we don't see any clients that she's connecting with or getting any satisfaction out of it, except for the money she's saving up to go somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. she has this now, I guess, relieved relationship of, you know, having been mistreated by Saeed and now he's gone. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we're supposed to read about, Ex- except as unlike the the girl who has this pretty awesome power, um, which also I imagine keeps her. I mean, she must pay her rent somehow, right? I don't know. Maybe she pays it with all those watches she steals. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> you know that that there doesn't seem to be another model for being a woman in Bad City, at least, right? Mm-hmm. These are the two choices we're given, and they both seem. Um, while treated like humans, and by the the filmmaker and treated with some dignity and capable of human connection and everything their short-term life prospects seem pretty untenable yeah I mean definitely when you uh you know you pitch that against the backdrop of like the bodies in the ditch it's like oh yeah this doesn't seem that bad then yeah I mean I think there's a really uh because we start with that bodies in the ditch image kind of idea of people being made superfluous or extra or mm-hmm. expendable is mm-hmm. like colors the whole film I mean I was thinking about some of the bouts of like femicide and like Juarez that have happened oh, yeah. at different moments where um, or even Ted Bundy right um, yeah. where the people who are seen as expendable necessarily by who they are who are often sex workers so you can imagine her being killed and being thrown in that mm-hmm. ditch and not being um you know, even kind of mourned. And so I think there's, I think that theme is, I think, and I think we're supposed to think about whether that applies to all sorts of societies where, you know, you don't see the bodies in the ditch, which mm-hmm. is pretty sobering, which is why even though, yeah, it's a horror movie, but it's, um, I don't know. I mean, all of them make you think about other things, but. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, your point really brings up what we're supposed to think when we hear the title, you know, 
Oh, right. Yeah. Like when you hear a girl walks home alone at night, like the instinct is like, oh, put your keys between your fingers because you're going to be attacked. You are the victim. And she's taking that and spinning it on its head, which I loved. Like, I thought that was really awesome. Yeah, there's a really fun scene where I can't remember now who the man in it is, but they're doing that thing where you're walking on the opposite side of street of someone and you're trying to figure out if they're pacing you. Yes. But it's but the gender is flipped. I found it like really, really uh, amusing um, to watch um, because, you know, in here there is a threat. But as you say, it's the it's, it's a different threat. Yeah, that felt so powerful to see, you know, because like I've been in situations like that I'm sure everyone every woman listening has where you're just you don't feel safe and like to see her be so powerful and like manipulate a man on the street yeah and I think and I I think you're right that we should you know I'm also a white woman so talking about this from my particular cultural vantage point there are certain limits to that but there's clearly something also going on here with the way that her um embrace of that power is playing with stereotypes about Muslim women mm-hmm. right and the and the um, amazing use of the um, chowder that she wears as a cape right so instead mm-hmm. of instead of it becoming this um, oppressive uh, garment which sometimes it's framed as in in Western feminism uh, it becomes something else right it becomes this this tool for her hiding um it's still about visibility and invisibility but in a really different way so I love Mm -hmm. that kind of pushing back at not only who you think needs to be safe walking home late at night but who you think needs to be saved globally like who needs who needs rescue and who's a vulnerable person and and then you get this kind of superhero image I mean the one with the I think that's why the image of the her going down the street on the skateboard with it billowing out behind her Mm -hmm. is so powerful to me because of the superhero yeah. You know, so I think that is a really cool indicator of like this powerful woman. Did any other themes jump out at you in the film? When when I first watched it, I was kind of frustrated by the no place of the setting. So mm-hmm. we hear that it's called Bad City. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, the director said that in Farsi, it's Wind City, and that has intimations of it being bad in some way. Um, and I was kind of like, well, why not tell us if, you know, we must be um, in Iran because we're speaking Farsi. But then again, a lot of the imagery looks as it should because it's filmed in California, right? Kind mm-hmm. of um, Californian. But then we have these oil derricks, which could be the Middle East or it could be. Um, and I was frustrated with that in some ways. But then I was thinking about it and I was like, OK, well, if you want to make a film where you're thinking where you as someone who is an immigrant or from an immigrant family, you know, thinking about kind of what it means to then think back to a home country that you either have lived in or haven't lived in or your parents have or your grandparents it kind of makes sense that you try to think about that place through an invented kind of in-between weird place that is American and Iranian both in strange ways so I so I think there's probably something uh, important about the kind of fairy tale nature of this or however you want to think about the mystical nature of it for thinking about being an immigrant and I haven't thought mm. enough about it and I don't have enough personal experience to say but um I don't know I love the the way that it's it's neither in America or Iran and and that maybe matters if you're if you're you know a, a second generation immigrant trying to sort sort out who you are and how your identity relates back to a projected identity to a place you may maybe have or haven't been and how vampires also are kind of 
always on the edges of of the inhabited human spaces right they're always Mm -hmm. in the dark they're always potentially suspicious you can imagine thinking about the experience of muslim families after 9-11 in the united states and the way in which they are suspicious um or seen as suspicious Mm -hmm. so i don't know yeah there was definitely an uncertainty about the setting and the backdrop of it and it was always nighttime yes (laughs) And it was so shadowy, like the way it was filmed. I often, like when I first started watching it, I was kind of like a little annoyed because I can't see anybody's face, you know. (laughs) But I mean, that really speaks to what you were saying about like it's hard to know your surroundings and the true identity of things as an outsider, you know. So I think that's very astute. Yeah, it was good on the big screen. I think probably some of the... um, some of the darkness and shading doesn't work as well on a smaller. When I watched it again on my laptop, I was like squinting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what were your favorite parts of this movie? Oh, gosh. Um, I think we talked about some of them. I love when she bites off uh, mm-hmm. its finger just after, as you're saying, he does that incredibly annoying finger in the mouth trick. Yeah. But I just loved that just it's it's even kind of subverting the vampire trope of biting on the neck although she does that too Mm -hmm. you know it's just just i loved the direct um uh, reversal of that um i love all the scenes and there's a bunch of them throughout the movie that are kind of very cliche girl getting ready Mm -hmm. for something scene so putting on makeup or she goes in the bathtub after we see her kill someone for the first time dancing but then they all have this undercurrent of kind of menace or um, I loved all of those the way in which her knowing who she was kind of shifted the way that they appeared and they're just aesthetically quite lovely Mm -hmm. um what else uh I love so I noticed this but didn't know what it meant so when I was watching this movie I'm like why does Madonna's face look so weird so in her house there's a bunch of album covers on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, Madonna, one of her early albums, and then um, uh, Thriller, the Thriller cover, and then I think it's the Bee Gees. I was like, Madonna's face looks really weird. Why does it look weird? So I Googled it, and apparently they couldn't get the rights to use the actual <gasps> oh. thing, and it's Margaret Atwood's face dressed what? up like Madonna. Yeah, you what? should Google this. Find the still. Because I guess Margaret Atwood backed this film. She gave money to the director. That's so cool. Yeah, and then the the Michael Jackson is the director herself dressed up in the thriller costume because they couldn't get the rights. Anyway, I love that. So now so now I, I went back and looked at that minute and I was like, that's why Ma- that's why Madonna looks so different because it's oh my Margaret gosh. Atwood. But I also love that lineage, like pointing to a mentor who you know doesn't do horror exactly but does some horror adjacent feminist work anyway so I loved that this time watching it so basically anytime we're in her apartment I'm really I'm I'm there for that what oh about my you gosh. I can't wait to go back and look at that now I love the idea of like Margaret Atwood like kind of like sexed up and oh yeah I would have that I would like totally Madonna. have that poster they really yes. should have sold that yes that's <laughs> that's outstanding um yeah, I honestly, I really, really enjoyed the scene where Saeed, the drug dealer, is like, hey, come over and watch me dance and lift weights and do drugs and then murdered. Um, it just felt really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. I also really, you know, I really liked the end. You know, I know that's cliche to say that I loved the ending, but I love this um because, you know, for me, it felt like 
the metaphor of the relationship of like, okay, we've both worked through our issues. You know, I, you know, worked through being a vampire and you worked through <laughs> your relationship with your heroin addicted dad. <laughs> and now we're both fully formed people and we're going to get out of here and start a new life with our cat. Like that kind of feels like what I'm aiming for right now. <laughs> I'm not sure which character I am, but it felt really good and hopeful to me. I loved it. I do like the end. And I, I like that that end, I think if if someone hasn't seen the film, they might think that the end is like saccharine and it's sweet, but it's definitely there. There's a future, a new future opening up, but they're also like they trying to figure it out, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. they work through their issues, but they're not, <laughs> I don't think either of them is sanguine that like everything's going to be perfect, right? And I love that. I mean, there's a, I think right before the, the, the end, you know, he goes outside and like kind of paces around for a little bit. Um, so I like that because I felt like it was a nod to, I don't know, realism is overrated, but at least to the complexities of the new world that they're trying to build or go to. Or, yeah. I mean, you kind of wonder why anyone stays in Bad City. Yeah. Uh, at all. You can leave Bad City, guys. Everybody, <laughs> let's leave Bad City together. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Awesome. Well, it was great having you on the podcast to talk about this film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, do you have any upcoming projects or events you'd like to plug? Oh, gosh. I I don't have anything super soon. But for people who are in the Madison, Wisconsin area in April, um, so every year the... um, uh, UW Women and Gender Studies Consortium, which is from most of the campuses, has a conference and it's combined with this other summit for now four years. And so it's open and free to the public. There's really great speakers. Um, I mean, I'll be on a panel too, but there'll be all sorts of really fabulous national speakers who will be there. It's April 11th through 13th. So I really recommend that. Um, I think actually on the 13th, also in Madison, there's the Labor History Society, which I really recommend folks coming out to. Dan Kaufman's going to be speaking. Um, I'm on a small panel, but the Dan Kaufman stuff's going to be super fun. That was Go see Allison's panel, too. She's amazing. Yeah, you amazing. can come see me, too. But, you know, it's <laughs> the one of the panels is about the UW system merger. And oh. so it's interesting, mm-hmm. but maybe not interesting to everybody. Sometimes I have more public things going on. Um, oh, and if you're in the Green Bay area... Um, Blair Amani, who is a, um, speaking of this movie, is like a Muslim feminist activist, is going to be speaking at UWGB, um, and that's really exciting. Oh, when is that happening? April 4th. Cool. We try to schedule everything after the snow, but of course, it'll snow in May if I say something like that. It's never going to stop snowing here. How about you? Do you have upcoming stuff? Oh, I do. Thank you for asking. Uh, let's see. I have my monthly show at the Green Room here in De Pere, Wisconsin called Fan Club Comedy. Uh, last Thursday of every month. And then in the end of March, I will be in Arkansas um, doing a bunch of headlining dates down there. I think it's the 25th through the 29th. You can check out KristenLady.com if you live in that area and want to see me. Uh, March uh, the first week of March, I'll also be in Iowa City for Floodwater Comedy. So come check out the fest. And yeah, that's it for me. Um, that's been Allison Stoddinger, and I've been Kristen Lighty, and this has been Bloody Mary. Have a good night. Why are you creeping?